a way to get people to listen to us and to give us more attention than maybe they would have otherwise was just by treating them like really important clients, which is exactly what they were. But they just hadn't been treated like that. You're listening to That Worked, a show that breaks down the careers of top founders and executives and pulls out those key items that led to their success. I'm your host, Callan Harrington, founder of Flash Growth, and I couldn't be more excited that you're here. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of That Worked. This week's guest, I'm joined by Katie Hill. Katie is the founder and CEO of Unlisted. And Unlisted allows real estate agents and home buyers to express interest in off-market properties. They do this through their easy-to-use technology. And if you've ever tried to get off-market properties, you know how challenging that process is. Katie is a two-time founder and has seen a ton of success in her career. Prior to founding Unlisted, she founded the company Commuter Ads, which has seen a ton of success in its own right. In this episode, we dive into a number of different topics. We talk about the importance of starting a company with a business model. This is a lesson that I personally had to learn the hard way. We discussed going above and beyond for your clients, and in particular, a process for anticipating your clients' needs. One of the underlying themes throughout the episode was persistence. Katie is persistent, and her story of landing the founder of Kayak as an investor at her newest startup is both fantastic and a great example of her persistence and the power of persistence in general. So with that, let's get to the show. Katie, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about Unlisted. Great. So yeah, Unlisted, um, it's unlistedhomes.com. It's a prop tech startup. We launched our MVP exactly a year ago today. On St. Patrick's Day. It was St. Patrick's Day Day by design. (laughs) Yeah, I I have a little (laughs) Irish heritage. And so um, it felt like a great day to go ahead and launch an MVP. And so what it is, is the idea is, we we like to say about unlistedhomes.com, it's where off-market is no longer off-limits. The idea is that home buyers who are looking for a house can search on our platform every single house that exists. So not necessarily what's listed for sale, but every single property. And then they can use our platform to draft a note to the homeowner of those off-market properties, explaining to them why they like that house and what their timeline to move might be. And then we package these notes up into these care packages. They're like gold, sparkly envelopes that go out with cookies or chocolate or brownies and these personalized letters to the homeowners. So the idea is that they're really eye-catching and there's something sweet inside. And then along with this personalized letter, plus the technology generates an invitation code, which allows the homeowner to come back to the platform, enter that code, and then they're connected directly with that buyer And the two parties can chat inside the platform about what their property plans may be without ever having to exchange information, you know, personal information, but sort of see if there might be a real estate deal to be had or not. Okay. I want to circle back to this. Where'd your career start? (laughs) Actually, you know, I don't have any entrepreneurs in my family, but 
in retrospect, like I probably am an entrepreneur at heart. My very first job out of college was a startup, which wasn't called a startup at the time. I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship, but it was like an idea around gift cards. This was when gift cards were kind of new. And, and a roommate and I were working on this idea to put all of the little like stores that were in our downtown campus town, put them on one card. And then so that students could go from like the bookstore to there was actually a video store to um, the local coffee shop and they could use the same gift card at these multiple locations and their parents could like load them up. I went to school in central Illinois. And so most of the students there were either from St. Louis or Chicago. And so their parents were and the money <laughs> by default were um, were remote. And so the idea with the gift card is the parents could load it up and then the kids could spend the money at these little shops. And so we got a little bit of traction. We had a couple stores sign up with us. I said I would give myself one year after graduation to pursue that. I took a job at a bank and then worked on this on the side and said, you know, if it doesn't work in a year, then I'll go get like a real job. I'm air quoting real job. <laughs> it was about eight months into this venture that I realized we actually had no business model. Like there was no way the business was ever going to make money. It was a cool idea. It was a lovely little concept, but it wasn't a moneymaker. You know, there was no way it was ever going to pay the bills. My friend and I kind of wrapped it up pretty quickly after we realized that and I went and, and got a, a corporate job. But um, that was such a huge lesson for me because now in my own startups and when I work with other startups, I always start with a business model. Like we whip out the spreadsheets first and foremost and just make sure that there's some sense of a way that this thing is going to make money because it's amazing how easy it is to get wrapped up in the idea and forget that if you wanted to pay the bills, you have to have some sort of path to that. Especially when you get feedback from people where it's, oh, that's genius. Oh, you got to do that. That is genius. And then you do a model. You're like, this will never work. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, that's exactly right. You jumped right to it, but I was going to ask, like, how big of an impact did that have on your future businesses? You just talked on it, but like, I have to assume that was gigantic. It was huge. It was huge. And it was a perfect example of one of those things like where it's a failure, but there's so many lessons there, you know, and it really did. I was never like horribly disappointed about it, but I was just like, oh, that was dumb. You know, that was that was, <laughs> <laughs> that was not the way to do that. And like I said, now I the very first thing I ask pretty much anybody is, well, you know, what's the business model? Like, how does it work? How does it scale? And sitting down and thinking about that is really a fun exercise. Sometimes it feels like like that's not that's the finance part is something that a lot of people just want to avoid, I feel like because it feels like this big black box. But so that's my the the I would say like the main way that I work with entrepreneurs is we just sit down next to each other in a coffee shop and it takes 90 minutes. And usually we start with a brand new fresh spreadsheet. I, I think it's hard to find a a worksheet or a you know some kind of thing that you can plug yourself into as much as that would be nice. We generally just start from scratch and they kind of talk through their business and we start plugging numbers into a spreadsheet and just see what happens. I think people oftentimes find that pretty empowering once they realize like it's not that hard, first of all. And second of all, like there is a path to something interesting. Or if there's not, better to figure that out now than 12 months from now. It's such great advice. I think the one for me was that really set in stone was once I got to that point where I started building like regular business models, what I wasn't doing, right? I was just building P&Ls. I wasn't building a cash flow forecast. What is your thoughts on that? On as you're building a model on a P&L versus cash flow, do you get in that, that granular when you're when you're kind of building these initial models? Yeah, we often do or we usually start with the P&L just to see that there's some sort of general sense of some path to profitability. 
But then usually there, that's the next question is like, okay, how would this work? When would you have to invest in inventory? How long would it take you to sell? How long is it going to take you to collect? What is your sales cycle? What do we think it's going to be? It's always two or three or five times longer than we think it's always. going to be, right? 1,000%. Yeah. So just kind of making sure that we ask those questions and, and think through that as much as we can, you know, you know, as much in advance as we possibly can. I know like there's no way to know everything that's going to happen, but at least sort of trying to put something down on paper. And then what I tell my clients is that, and then that's kind of your goal. Now we've set sales goals. That's not just a number on the top line of a spreadsheet. That's like what you have to go get. And then when you spend your money, you know, you need to spend it also in this realm. Generally, that's the goal. And like, if we need to tweak it and adjust it as we start to learn more, we absolutely will. But like, at least we have something that we're shooting for. 100%. I think that's such good advice. So you went to a corporate job. Was this Leo Burnett? Yes. What was that like? <laughs> that was amazing. How'd you get that job as well? That's a funny story. The reason why I wanted to work at Leo Burnett is because a girl that I thought was cool in college, <laughs> who was a couple years older than me, said she wanted to work at Leo Burnett. So then I wanted to work at Leo Burnett. <laughs> and um, I don't think she ever did go work there. But once I had made that shift in my mind that I wasn't going to do that initial startup and I was going to go get a corporate job, like the only place I wanted to work was Burnett. And so, but Burnett did not like recruit out of the school where I did my undergrad. I didn't have any advertising or PR or marketing experience really, but I sent my resume anyways. And I worked my way through the phone system there to get myself to HR. I think the best I could do was call the like main line and just asked for HR, I think, and they connected <laughs> me. I don't remember exactly how that worked, but I know I had to work through the phone system. And eventually I did find my way to the person who had my resume on her desk. And she sort of right away managed my expectations, like, thank you so much for submitting, but you know, we don't really have any openings right now. And I know there was something posted, but that one's been filled. And I was like, okay, well, you know, can I call back? <laughs> in a couple months or whatever and just see where things stand. And I got her phone number then at that point. I asked her for her number and she did give it to me. And then I just checked back with her probably every three weeks or so. For how long? At least three or four months. And we sort of ended up forming a little bit of a relationship. I ended up knowing a little bit about what was going on with her niece and nephew. And she knew that I was in central Illinois, you know, hoping to get back up to the big city. And eventually, you know, it was like I was calling and there was no news and calling and there was no news and we're chit-chatting. And then one day I got a call from her. And by then, you know, she was calling me Kate. <laughs> Kate, guess what? <laughs> you know, something's opened up. I'm going to, you know, line you up for a phone interview. And so that was like how I kind of got my my break there, I guess. Um, I did the phone interviews and then they brought me in for the in-person interviews, which was the, it was one of these like round robins. I think you were there for like five hours and you did back to back to back. And I got the offer pretty quickly after that, which was really exciting. And what was interesting about it was that I did have a degree in marketing, but the thing that actually got me that job, my first job was in response management in database and direct marketing. And the thing that got me the job was I had worked as a research assistant for a professor on campus, and I knew how to use SPSS. What is SPSS? It was like a little like database system that we did all of our research. You know, I, like I was, I would basically key in data. You know, for that they for this research that they were doing. It was research on principles in the state of Illinois. I went to Illinois State, and that's a big teacher school. So it was this database experience that I had that made them interested in me for database and direct marketing. It wasn't advertising, you know, or marketing background. So I thought that that was an interesting lesson. And like, you never know what experiences you have that might end up being relevant to the roles that you ultimately want. 
I'm like grateful. That was Dr. Baker. He was the professor I worked for. And it turned out it was all the hours in his office that really got me my first job than than anything having to do with my degree. It's one of those things that comes up quite a bit. And it's interesting because the knowledge that you have that you think is throwaway knowledge, right? Let's just call it throwaway knowledge. <laughs> it's a term I just coined. It. <laughs> throwaway knowledge that it's like, oh, no, like everybody knows this. Like this is like this is super common stuff. Why would they care about this? And that's exactly what people want. I had a post on LinkedIn that I said something along the lines of, you know, I always hire in pairs because it helps somebody. I was like, this is just like, everybody knows this, I don't even, I, but I'll put it out there because like, I think it's cool. Blew up. Like, and I just couldn't, it did better than any of these posts that I put like two hours into creating. So you got to Leo Burnett. What was it like? That was an incredible job. The training was world-class. I mean, we were on really big, giant, multi-million dollar, multinational accounts. As I recall, I think I was on the, they used to call it the bench for, I think it was six months, like before they would even let you talk to a client. And they taught you how to answer the phone and how to write an email and kind of the expectations on response times and just really world-class client service. And that has stuck with me so much. Now it's just my MO now, you know, it's just one of the biggest things that has served me so well is what they really taught us how to do was anticipate the client's needs. So, you know, you get a question from a client in email, and not only do you make sure, one, that you answer that question, but you also think about, like, what are they really asking? Or what are they, you know, why are they asking this? And, like, what other information or what other support can we give them to help them get to, like, where we think that they're going? That is powerful stuff when you can start to understand that. And when you see someone do that for you, you know, you know, like what a huge difference it makes when you can do that for other people. It just puts you light years ahead from a client service standpoint. How do you do that? What's what's kind of the process for figuring that out? I think it's about being able to put yourself in the client's shoes and it gets easier and easier the more you know the business. You know, like you can sort of start to you understand the dynamics and you know who's asking the question of them and why they're asking and where it's going. But I think it's just some of it is just taking a second and reading it or listening to the question carefully and then just thinking about, like, why are they asking this or what are they looking for, really? And if we just sort of shoot something back quickly and don't put much thought into it, then it's going to be fine. You're going to have done the job. But I think it's just taking that extra second to put yourself in their shoes that really can make a huge difference in the way that you respond and the way that you make them feel about the work that you're doing for them and sort of confidence you're instilling and your ability to, I mean, we're an agency. They're hiring you to be experts in something. And so being able to demonstrate that, like, I know what you're asking and I know why you're asking and I'm going to give you the next three things that I know that you need. Like, that's what an agency is supposed to do in my, in my mind. And I think that's what we were taught. I think it's a great point. How has that helped you in your company today? That's not an agency, but more of a software company. Which I think I treat now everything like an agency. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, we all have clients to serve. They can all go work with anybody else. So like now I kind of think of whether it's home buyers or real estate agents as my clients. And there's a million other marketing services that they can use. There's a million software platforms they can use. What am I giving them that's making them feel seen and heard and really getting them the solutions that they're looking for? And I remember like a place where it was really noticeable for me was I might be jumping ahead a little bit here, but 
I went to a startup after Leo Burnett called Commuter Ads, and that was a company focused on public transit. So suddenly we were, I was working with the public sector, and all I was doing for them was the same things I had been trained as sort of just natural at Burnett in, in a highly competitive, high-stakes private sector position. And I just sort of applied those same things without even thinking about it in this public sector that was not as client-focused. And I, we were just knocking their socks off. It hadn't dawned on me before that, that like, oh, not everybody does this. Not everybody thinks about clients in the same way. Not everybody responds to things in the same way. And for a brand new idea that was really opening eyes to like, that was another sort of unknown concept that sort of a way to get people to listen to us and to give us more attention than maybe they would have otherwise was just by treating them like really important clients, which is exactly what they were. But they just hadn't been treated like that. I spent some time in the agency space as well. And I think one of the, that is such a big one, like over-servicing your clients. And then, especially in the early stages of a startup, the early stage of a startup, you have to, because your product's just not going to be there. The product or service really isn't going to be there. The only thing that, that is going to be there is like, how do you show up for these? And then like the other one for me was the level of detail that you put into whatever that presentation, anything that's going in front of the client has to look good. And it's dotting the I's, crossing the T's, the level of design, appreciation for design is probably what I'm, I'm getting at. Did you find that as well? Just out of curiosity, like the standard that was acceptable on that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was a world-class creative agency at, at Burnett. So everything we did was beautiful. Now, I personally am not a graphic designer, you know, but I definitely have an eye for it. And so um, sort of understanding the difference between a really great looking deck versus somebody took the template and threw some new words on, a, you know, black letters on a white background or whatever. I mean, yeah, you're, like, you're just not going to get the same attention that, that you're going to get if it looks like the company knows what it's doing. Yep. I know exactly what you're saying. I, I'm not a designer. They tried to get me in design one time. They're like, hey, we're going to have you build the decks in InDesign. I was like, well, you might as well return this license because <laughs> there's no shot I'm going to figure this one out. <laughs> um, that lasted all but five hours. Yeah, uh, my design skills are still terrible. But luckily, I now have amazing colleagues who have been with me now for a couple of these startups who we almost can just look at each other and say like, yeah, we know what this should look like. And they can bring it to life, which is such an awesome way to work together. A hundred percent. So you founded Commuter Ads, correct? Yes, I did. There were two of us. Yep. How was it going from Leo Burnett to founding another company? It was really exciting. So Commuter Ads was location-based advertising on public transit. It still is. It's still a thriving company. Location-based ads on public transit. So the idea is as a bus drives past a Dunkin' Donuts, we can trigger a message inside the bus that says, hey, did you know there's a Dunkin' Donuts at the next stop? Hop off, grab a coffee, and then the next bus will be along in seven minutes or whatever. And that's a cool business model because so the way that it works is the advertisers would pay Commuter Ads. And Commuter Ads had contracts with the public transit authorities that, that we then shared with them. So they gave us access to their systems. And then we in turn went and generated revenue for them. There was a business model there. There's a great business model there. So yeah, that came together. You know, it probably worked on that for a year or so again on the side until then when it was finally ready to make that leap. By that time, you're just dying, right? And so I left Leo Burnett with the fondest memories and the best feelings about everybody there. I still am in touch with my EVP of that department was a huge influence on me. 
Lisa Gillis. We're still in touch. She's been supporting me on my latest startup. She was encouraging of me even then when I left. She was just a mentor and a guide. And and I took so much of the stuff that I saw her do and brought it to that startup. And to this day now have carried it forward in, in a lot of the things that I do. So yeah, that was really formative. What were some of the big challenges that you ran up against at Commuter Ads? I would, gosh, the biggest one probably was venture capital, if I'm being totally honest. We did end up getting VC, and that was tougher than I had expected, which probably sounds really naive because I guess now I'd say, like, who takes venture capital and doesn't think it's going to be tough? But in retrospect, I don't know that we would take that funding again. Why is that? Oh, gosh. It brought like a whole different. I would say that we would do our diligence on the VC as hard as they did the diligence on us. This is a very close business relationship that ends up coming together. And so if you're not 100% certain of who you're working with, I would say that you could be setting yourself up for misaligned expectations. And the money is like so exciting, especially when the business is starting to take off. And you think about, as they say, putting jet fuel on it. It's really, really hard, I think, to resist that. But you have to understand that that money comes with folks that may not have the same culture as you, may not have the same values as you, may not see, you know, have the same vision for the business as you do. And so I would say like as much as you can But for the benefit of everybody involved, figure that out well in advance. I think that that's probably really important. Did you raise capital with your current company? I did. So far, it's all been angels. No institutional funds yet. Gotcha. So if I'm hearing you on VC, it was, it's not necessarily like, or it's know what you're getting into and know who you're getting into it with, because you're going to be tied. The reality is once you go the VC route, and I tell people, like, my advice is like, there's no one way to do it. But if you want to build something that's going to sell for a billion dollars, you're probably going to have to raise a lot of money. And the VCs have a lot of money. And if you got the right VC, it works out great. If the VC doesn't align with you, your culture, how you want to build this and everything else, then that's going to be really tough because you got to rely on them for a lot of different things that aren't obvious, I think. I couldn't have said it any better. <laughs> Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly right. Yeah. And if you find investors that are aligned with your direction and everything else, they can work out amazing. But yeah, it's very different. And whether you take, depending on your company, growth equity or a bank note, or there's all there's pros and cons to all of it. It sounds like for where you were at in the situation that in hindsight, you could have done that. What would actually that is my question. What would you have done differently? Well, I think I'm doing it now, actually, which is really exciting. So there was conflict with the VC. Certainly they played their part in it. Certainly we played our part in it. I would say like our biggest mistake was we were really green and we just didn't know how to navigate these relationships and how to like probably, you know, not be overly defensive or not be uncertain of where things were going. And I guess now I'm 10 years later past that. And I feel like my approach is completely different. You know, (laughs) I'm a lot more seasoned um, than I was then. And I think that has made a huge difference because, yeah, I'm not sitting here saying all VC is evil. I'm not saying that at all. But I do think you have to find the right VC or the right angels. And what has come to me with this newest venture has been the most incredible people with incredible track records They are proven 
technologists, proven entrepreneurs, and they know what they're talking about. Their advice is incredible. I'm not just one more board meeting that they have to go to amongst, you know, 30 others. It's just a totally different vibe and it feels so much better. So it's not to say that. And I think what I'm doing differently is just sort of having brought that experience forward and just being like, that is not something I want. And when, then when I see something that's different, I recognize it immediately. How did you do that? How did you navigate that? Right. So what you had mentioned, like, how did you do diligence on them? Like they would typically do diligence on you with this new group where you found like this great situation. So I think a couple things. One, a lot of my earliest investors are people that I've been working with now for four or five, six years. Like in, I had, after commuter ads, I joined a local accelerator incubator called the Entrepreneur Center as a entrepreneur in residence. And so just by the nature of that role, I was around a lot of people who were entrepreneurs themselves or who were interested in the startup space and have worked with them just side by side as a colleague for five years And so then when I went out to do my own thing, a lot of them graciously raised their hand to support me in that. So that was, and you know, all people that I knew really well. And so that was really special. And then the other thing that happened was, so this is kind of a crazy story, but you know the podcast, How I Built This? Yeah. Do you know that one? Yeah, absolutely. Not quite the size of this show, In addition to listening to yours, (laughs) yes, I also listened to that one. And I heard the episode with Paul English, who started Kayak.com. And he was talking about all the different technology businesses he had started. And he also kind of like continues to dabble. And he's just had like massive success with many of them, most of them. And I had the unlistedhomes.com idea in my brain when I heard this podcast and sort of understood the business side of it and the startup side and like knew the story and the pitch and the model and all those kinds of things. But what I didn't know was the technology. So I I sent Paul English an email after like listening to this podcast. I, I found his website and then found some email addresses and emailed those. And a couple of them didn't work, but there was the contact for an assistant on LinkedIn. And so I reached out to her and then she gave me another email that like within 15 minutes, he emailed me back. I sent him my pitch deck and said that I was like looking for technical advice. So yeah, so he wrote me back like that night and he connected me to Bill O'Donnell, who was the chief architect at kayak.com. And I knew who Bill O was because Paul talks about him on the podcast. So when he connected me on email, like I, you know, I was like, oh my God, this is Bill O. I know who this is. Bill O wrote me back the next day and we scheduled a Zoom. This is like in the middle of the pandemic, by the way. We scheduled a Zoom for like the following Monday. And we've been talking for an hour every single Monday since. He was on my cap table when I founded the company um, with a teeny tiny bit of advisor shares. He's very, very, very generous with his time and his advice. I don't think I'll ever be able to properly compensate him for what he's done for me. But yeah, they've made all the difference. So that MVP that we launched a year ago, we did that using Kayak's dev shop, Arbisoft, because they connected me with that and like helped me through all that so that we could at least run a proof of concept. And then eventually, at the end of last year, they came in and invested as well. So by that point, I had been working with them for a year with Billow for an hour a week for a year. They brought in a couple other people who have been super instrumental, too. And they're just such a good vibe. I don't know how many ways I can say that, but one of the things that struck me about them is they show up exactly on time to everything. Like if you have a 3.30 Zoom, 
the second the clock hits 3.30, like they pop up in the in the box, you know, they've done it all. They've seen it all. They don't even have to be talking to me, frankly. And yet they just give everyone so much respect and they're just very generous. And it's opened my eyes about how you can have massive success and do it in a way that is still very kind and warm and thoughtful and considerate. And not that we don't have tough conversations because we do, but always from a place of respect. And they just do things well. And I love that so much. And I've learned so much from them. That is such an incredible story. So one, you did the same thing that you did with the Leo Burnett job. You just started (laughs) calling around until you could figure out where to get in touch. So how did that change the trajectory of this business? Well, I mean, the whole thing has been moving a lot faster and with a lot more ease than how I recall my last startup moving. It just really has felt like I've had the wind at my back. I would say maybe, so I just actually went full-time three months ago and maybe now (laughs) it's starting to feel a little harder. You know, it's like now this is reality. Um, I'm in a business development role. So like I'm spending all day, every day, basically cold calling and and trying to, you know, bring customers on, improve the model. I mean, the goal is to generate revenue so that we can go out and raise another round by the end of the year and hopefully get that valuation a little higher because I've been able to prove more with greater revenue. But it's hard. You know, I'm not going to lie. And then I also have, in the meantime, also brought on a full-time software engineer, Henry Hagemeyer. He's awesome, based in in Chicago. So he's building the product all day and I'm selling the product all day. And Yeah, I mean, it's super exciting, but it's really hard work. So you knew that. You knew that would be hard work because you had founded a successful company before that's still thriving. I guess a couple of things. Why do it again? (laughs) That's a great question. And actually, the thing about hard work, it's funny because I have another advisor to Brian Kaur, who's here in Dayton. Bill and I do everything over Zoom because he's based in the Boston area. But Brian's here in Dayton with me. And I said, I was kind of whining to him the other day. I was like, oh, it's so hard. It's such hard work. Uh, and he goes, it's not hard work. It's just work. Like, it's just work. Like, that's what you're doing. Did you think you were going to do this without work? Of course not. Uh, so that's an example of we were talking a little earlier about when you need a kick in the butt or some tough love. Like, that's what I needed to hear. For me, that was like super empowering to be like, yeah, it's not hard. It's just work. Like, go do the work. So why do it again? I think that for me, it's always the thing about like, I can't live with myself not knowing like, what if? I'd thought it through a ton. I'd looked at it a million ways a Sunday from a financial standpoint. I'd showed it to a ton of smart people. And so many people saw what I saw as well that I felt validated that like, this is definitely worth a try. There's probably no straight path here. I have a feeling if we're talking a year from now that the way in which we're approaching this business could be completely different. We're learning so, so much. But I just think the thought of like laying in bed for the rest of my life, wondering what would have happened if I had pursued that transit advertising thing, if I had pursued that real estate idea, like where might I be? I'd rather just know. (laughs) 100%. And what are you doing differently this time from your learnings from the first time doing this? Well, I am super selective about who I work with. And luckily, though, I have... I'm very, I think that one of the things I'm proudest of at this point in my career is the network that I have built. And I used to like cringe every time somebody would use the word network. I just thought that sounded so cheesy. And like the last thing I ever want to do is like go to a networking event. But there's so much power in it. And like, and I think that that's like why it feels like the wind is at my back is because I do have amazingly talented 
encouraging, positive people around me that can just like not be underestimated. So I think there's something to be said for just being older (laughs) and having like done more things and known more people. And maybe even a piece of it is that I've also done things for other people. I've had more time to do things for others that then sort of makes them willing to help me as well. I think that that's probably definitely true. For me, that's what feels the most different is I just have a lot more experience and I worked with a lot more people and they're all really great and they're helping me too. Absolutely. When you think of back from being an entrepreneur just in general, what were some of those mistakes where you're like, man, I got lucky to get through this one? That's a good question. I think it's hard for me to, I I mean, I think taking things in stride is huge. I mean, I think I was probably a lot more of a drama queen before than I am now. Overreacting to things is not a good option. I think I used to sort of feel like I was always hanging on by my fingertips and that any little thing that went wrong was like going to take everything down, which it is always precarious. Like there's no question about that in a startup, but that's the nature of the game, you know? So I think like you need to like not act so surprised when it feels like you're on the edge because you're on the edge. That's the lifestyle. And until you claw your way out of that, that's what you should expect. And so just sort of not being so dramatic about that would be is something that I'm definitely trying to do differently. I think that's such an interesting point. That is definitely one that I was not ready for when I I'd been in startups, but I do think there's a difference between being in early stage companies and founding a company, any company. It doesn't matter, service business, uh, tech company, whatever it may be, where you just like, oh, this could be gone tomorrow. And you've got this doom that hits you when you go to sleep. Was there something that either happened where you're like, oh, okay, I don't really feel this anymore? Or was it just over time, you just kept surviving? Or like the things that you thought were going to be the most devastating things just didn't end up being the most devastating things, whether that was personally or for the business? Yeah, I think um, it probably, again, is a function of experience that I think I was very much defined by my first startup. There was the idea that that wasn't going to go exactly as I planned was like inconceivable. And the idea of like, if it didn't go right, what would I do next? Would I, how would I ever move on was also like something I couldn't wrap my head around. But I have reinvented myself multiple times since then. And so I think that it's the same thing with this then, right? I can relax into Unlisted a little bit more. I mean, not that I'm not working really, really hard at it, but I also know that it doesn't define me and that people around me are still going to be here and that there's always like a way forward. And that even these like super successful people that I have around me right now, like they've also hit bumps, you know, and luckily they're generous with those stories too, because it's, it's, you know, it's just also relatable, but these people that you put up on pedestals that you think have never made a mistake in their lives, like they've been in the exact same seats that we've all been in. That's what this is all about. Like, this is what we do. Like we hit bumps, we mess up, we think some things work, some things don't, but we just keep going. And It's cheesy. It's cliche, I know, but it's also just true. (laughs) It's the number one realization that I've had from this podcast, just in general, where everyone that's been on the show has been successful in whatever their career field is, but that was it. It was not just a straight shot straight to the top. It's like, oh, no, this was just figured out from day one. Everybody went through these different turmoils and different ways and everyone's paths different. So I totally agree with that. Last question. If you could have a conversation with your younger self, age, totally up to you, what would that conversation be? What advice would you give them? 
Yeah, that's... I feel like I'm actually still having conversations with myself on a daily basis, reminding myself of all the things that I've learned, like some of the things that we just talked about. So I would say like a pivotal moment for me, I did take some time away from commuter ads and was a stay-at-home mom for a little while. So I kind of like stepped out of my career entirely. And at the time, that felt really good. That felt like what I needed to do. But the idea of coming back was incredibly daunting. I felt like the world had passed me by. I felt like I couldn't remember how to send an email or talk to people that were more than three years old. And I would say that like that was probably the lowest that my confidence has ever been, was making that transition from stay-at-home mom back into the workforce. And I think it took me years, actually, to sort of... I, 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 and I think, actually, there's a possibility that I'm only just now kind of getting my mojo back. And probably Unlisted has something to do with that. So maybe that goes back to the earlier question of why. Is it just, like, something I'm super excited about that feels, like, really challenging, but that I know I can do? And I don't know that I, if I would have even had the, like, chutzpah to, to do that even three years ago. So I guess I, I would tell that... That woman, that mom, you know, like, just be patient with yourself, give yourself grace and give yourself room. You know, it's all still there. (laughs) It's just it's just been used in a different way for a couple of years, you know, and I wouldn't trade those years for anything. I have two daughters and they were 18 months apart. So I had two little ones at home. And gosh, you know, I look at those pictures and I'm so grateful for every single one of those days. And at the same time, now that they're older and so much more independent and capable, I'm also super proud of like what I'm modeling for them now. So it's probably natural for everybody to go through those really low, dark times and not be sure if you're if you can do it. But you just keep doing that, you know, one step, one foot in front of the other, one step forward and it all comes back. I love it. Katie, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. This is fun. I hope you enjoyed Katie and I's conversation. Katie's stories about her persistence were excellent. This has been one of the biggest factors in my own career as well. And if you want to learn more about Katie, you could find her on LinkedIn as well as unlistedhomes.com. If you like this episode, you could find me on LinkedIn to let me know. And if you really want to support the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify is very much appreciated. Thanks for listening and I'll see everyone next week.